Welcome to Watershed's July podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove and I'm the Head of Programme here at Watershed. Um, I'm delighted this month to be joined by uh, writer, author and broadcaster David Goldblatt, one of whose specialisms is in sport. Over the past um, four years, uh, Watershed's been working with David to um, in a programme of work um, presenting sports-related um, films and events uh, to the public in Bristol, uh, and also doing some um, media literacy workshops uh, with young people and also citizen journalism. A whole range of activity, in fact, over the past four years, which has been funded through um, the Relays programme at Watershed. What is Relays? Relays is a project um, funded by Cultural Olympiad money, um, channeled through higher education institutes in the southwest of England, that is attempting to build a legacy of cultural knowledge and skills and infrastructure in the southwest that will outlive the London 2012 Olympics and that connects culture, sport, technology, and young people. And in the case of Watershed's uh, involvement in relays, the focus has been on a certain amount of screening, you know, just for mm. sports movies, um, training young people um, in citizens' journalism technology, but specifically at sporting events, as well as running a programme of media literacy training here in the Watershed, where we're bringing kids and young people in, and we're using sports and sports movies as a way of expanding their kind of, you know, capacity to read film, to develop narrative, and to think about the place of sport in the wider culture. Running alongside the London 2012 yep. Olympics is the Cultural Olympiad. Yep. What, what, what is that all about? The Cultural Olympiad is the child of what were the cultural and artistic competitions at the Olympics. Baron de Coubertin, the founder uh, of the modern Olympic movement, always envisaged, um, in contrast to our own perspective in Britain on these things, that sports arts were all part of one wider culture and he wanted very much that to be part of the Olympic experience. So from 1912 to 1948 you had competitions um, in the arts, you know, competitions in poetry, music, architecture, painting, running alongside the athletics at the Olympics. And while this was pretty popular back in the 20s and 30s, by the time we got to the 1940s, um, it was looking slightly odd next to the athletics event and the whole problem of amateurism professionalism mm. raised its head and so you had all sorts of professional artists entering and people are going well this is meant to be an amateur mm. event how can this be we moved to cultural olympiads which is a whole program of cultural activities running alongside the olympics in the host city the cultural olympiad this time around is quite a low-key affair and i think it's probably not a bad, mm. not a bad decision, um, and it is a range of cultural events, some of which have a sporting theme, some of which, to be perfectly honest, don't have much of a sporting theme. But I think you know, while we're in kind of festival mood in Britain, putting on the Olympics, and as inevitably so much of the Olympics is going to be focused on London, mm. it's a great opportunity to get some of that kind of experience, some of that flavour out into the rest of the country. Mm. And Relays is just a small part mm. of this much wider investment in the culture and the arts that's mm. being showcased alongside the Olympics through the Cultural Olympiad. And people can see some of those, the, the outcomes of those um, Cultural Olympiad events, um, well, obviously around the country, but at Watershed, for example, we've, we are taking part in the Hansel of Film, 
which is an initiative set up by Mark Kermode in the Shetland Film Festival, which is taking um, short film programme in a kind of really progression um, across the country and getting people making short films and then screening them. And because, you know, Mark's obviously one of the sort of leading uh, film critics with a um, uh, popular profile, he's, you know, that's going to be getting audiences to come and see short films, which is, which is a great uh, initiative. And that will be coming into uh, Watershed in July as part of it. It felt very much when we were, uh, Watershed first got involved in relays, it felt, I felt a bit like, why are we getting involved in this sport thing? Um, and over the years, I, I now see why. But that initial response, I think, is shared by quite a lot of people, both in the sports world and in the sort of, it quotes, culture world. Well, why is there that disconnect? Because we're heirs to two unfortunate elements of British sporting culture, which are proved to be deeply anti-intellectual in their formation, one of which is the public schoolboy culture, the uh, muscular Christian gentleman of the late 19th century who would be transformed into suitable uh, material for ruling the empire by playing sport <coughs> and learn to be, you know, a good loser and, you know, tough as nails. Um, but what you definitely weren't was a kind of, you know, studious intellectual. You know, you played cricket, you played rugby, you played football, and then you went out and bore the white man's burden. But you certainly weren't going to do too much thinking along the way. In fact, mm. that was considered rather poor form. Mm. And then the other kind of main input into British sporting culture is, I suppose, the... Um, what I would call the kind of aristocracy of the working class model, which is, you know, your professional uh, male sports person at the turn of the 20th, early 20th century in football, in rugby league, uh, and so on. And again, this is very much a learning by doing culture, mm. you know, where, um, you know, you learn the game on the job. It's not about reflection. It's not about um, theoretical kind of analysis, it's about learnt experience, which of course is the way in which most of the aristocracy of the working class mm. were learning their trades in the late 19th century, you know, in, um, in skilled kind of trades. And I think that that has shaped much of the intellectual culture, both within sport and the way that it's viewed mm. from outside. I mean, if you look at other sporting cultures, for example, the United States, where one of the key sporting cultures is created in the Ivy League universities mm. uh, of the late 19th century, you don't have this scission between high culture and sport, between, you know, thinking and doing. Mm. It's perfectly possible and plausible. Indeed, it's actively encouraged for, you know, serious writers, serious people in the culture, cultural world to engage with sport, to write about it. And so, you know, America, for example, can boast over a century of sensationally good sports writing. When I was first um, researching this area, I came across a piece by William Faulkner that he'd written for uh, a literary magazine um, about a baseball match that he was at. And they were just saying um, about Don DeLillo's Underworld um, which he writes uh, about baseball. There does seem to be that flow in America between the literary and the sports world. I mean, I think there is that, you know, there's a lot of writers and have been a lot of writers in Britain who, you know, were into sport, but it wasn't deemed a kind of respectable topic for conversation. Mm. I mean, let's take Underworld by Don DeLillo as an example, one of the kind of great modern American novels, and the opening 90 pages is a scintillating, heart-rending, electric, fictional recreation of a very famous baseball game played in 1951 between um, the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants. 
uh, and in which um, the pennant, the title, was decided, you know, by the final, you know, shot of the final mm. of the final innings, and it was called the shot heard round the world. And not only is it a brilliant evocation of a moment in kind of sporting history, but in the hands of Delido, like many American writers, it serves as a really profound set of metaphors and opens up a whole series of interlinking stories that tell, you know, tell the story of, you know, post-war, post-war America. Mm. Um, and um, we don't, we haven't had anything like that. I mean, until Nick Hornby came along. I was going to say that, <clears> I mean, um, there does seem to have been over the past uh, couple of decades, I guess, you say Nick Hornby and then Damned United more recently. <clears throat> I mean, the th interesting thing with Nick Hornby, I reread Fever Pitch mm. recently. And one of the great things about Fever Pitch is actually there's very little football in it. Although football and his relationship mm. with Arsenal is the spine of the book mm. and what drives it, of course, and what everyone remembers about it. By comparison to many of the kind of wannabes that came afterwards, um, actually the amount of description of football is very minimal and it's actually a very you know, personal, emotional, familial sort of social mm. history story about his life. And it works brilliantly mm. as a consequence. Um, so it was a real breakthrough and it was a breakthrough by not going, by finding that really difficult balance between sport and its relationship mm. with the rest of the world. And, you know, too much sport, I mean, for example, I was reading Colin Schindler's Manchester United Ruin My Life, which is often spoken of in the same breath. And, um, you know, there was a lot of great stuff in it about mm. being Jewish in Manchester in the 1950s and his relationship with Manchester City and what how that you know aided one's kind of um, assimilation into non-Jewish society in Manchester but then there would just be pages and pages and pages of description of goals by Colin Bell and yeah. I'm just going no no get me back to the synagogue it's yeah. too much so we have had there's been a real advance yeah. there has been there's been a lot of great stuff we have some way to go to match the quality I would yeah. say of American writing but um, Damned United seemed to be a, a sort of breakthrough moment, as it were, because here, here was uh, a novel dealing with a very specific fan-orientated relationship in sport. Um, Fan-orientated? I mean, the Damned United doesn't strike me as a fan's book. I mean, it's no, an in, interior in, monologue in no, Brian Clough's it, brain, isn't in, it? In the sense that, you know, the, the audience for that book you would, you, I would have thought, would have been Brian Clough fans, fans of Leeds, fans of you know. So it's, so it's about exploring, mm. but yet mm. this this not only broke through in, in novel terms mm. as a as a, a piece of literary, mm. you know. So again, it's yeah. moved from the sport world into the literary acclaim yeah. world, and then also a film gets made of it that's hugely successful. The film, I mean, it's interesting. They're very different beasts actually, and both have their own their own sort of virtues. I mean, the book is fantastically dark, and I think that's one of the things that really, I think, helped it sort of appeal beyond the traditional sports basis, that it is a fantastic um, literary description of the internal mania of, uh, mm. of someone's mind. Mm. And, um, I mean, it does that incredibly mm. powerfully, like certainly no other book on sport I've ever read. The, um, the film is a much lighter, is a much lighter concoction. I mean, it has its joys, and um, one of the lovely touches in it, I think, and again, this is an interesting area that sporting culture in this country fights shy of, is the homoerotic relationship mm. between Peter Taylor and Brian Clough, and there's that lovely moment where Taylor's feeding Clough crisps 
in the car as they drive down the motorway to go and sign, uh, sign Dave Mackay. So, um, yeah, the film, I think, you know, both of them brought new things mm. to literary and filmic culture around mm. sport in this country, a kind of intensity and seriousness um, of the interior monologue in the book, and, you know, a kind of just fantastically light touch, but brilliant social history and a brilliant kind of again, capturing of those very intimate mm. relationships that you do get in sport between men in particular mm. that I thought was handled mm. really, really brilliantly. And move, moving on to um, how film has dealt with sport, I mean, are, are there films which have, have captured that uh, intensity, the passion, uh, you know, kind of obsessions that are obviously involved in sport um, in a way that um, a novel like Damn United has done? It's really hard to capture. I mean, one of the real challenges for all sports movies, I think, is that sport itself, and why we like it, is that it's great at you know, narratives, mm. you know, and it's, un it's unpredictable narrative, and that's what we love about watching a football game or any sporting event, is that a story evolves, you don't know what's gonna happen, it all happens in front mm. of you. Fantastic. Very, very hard to sort of recreate that uncertainty, that spontaneity, that intensity, in a movie mm. where you know, you know, you sort of descend into kind of cheese and cliche mm. or you, you know, you lose the kind of drama. So I think it's a real challenge for filmmakers. Mm. And in a way you have to get away from the sorts of narratives and the sorts of drama that sport in the mm. flesh, if you like, delivers and explore mm. other elements to kind of mm. get at that kind of intensity. I mean, I think, one of the movies that's on at the watershed in July is uh, Zidane, which um, I think in its own peculiar filmic way captures something of the intensity of the sporting mm. experience, both for participants and audiences. And Zidane is uh, a movie in which pretty much in real time, we see Zinedine Zidane, the French um, footballer, playing at Real Madrid. He plays, it's 90 minutes, it's a game against, I think, Real Zaragoza. and. Um, What's unusual is that we have 17 cameras um, all focused mm. on Zidane and we get a kind of sort of interior monologue of his experience of the game, which of course is profoundly different mm. to those watching it. And you do capture something of the extraordinary emotional intensity. It, it, one moment particularly strikes me in the film where uh, Zidane makes a pass and you hear the crowd roaring its approval because it's obviously gone somewhere really good. But for him, the moment's dead. Mm. And he just sort of walks, he mm. turns his back and it's like he's in another world. And that sense of the otherworldliness of the kind mm. of sporting hero in that context is captured brilliantly. I think there's also the sense of, you know, that single man in the great big sort of dark mm. black space and the cauldron-like noise is captured by the cinematography of that film in a way more conventional depictions of um, of sport don't capture. I think what, you know, what for me was really interesting about Zan is, as you say, it's <clears throat> because it follows one person in a football match, which yeah. is obviously 22 people on, on television shows you the game almost like from the ball's perspective of yeah. the ball being sort of moved yeah. about the pitch. So, of course, it's got all this energy and dynamism about it because you're, you're with the movement. Whereas what Zidane, the film Zidane does, is follow the, the other 
21 players that don't have the ball <laughs> at the time as it were yeah. and one single person and you realise the, the the a different kind of, well the kind of energy that's coming from that the single player oh yeah well, and you realise how much time footballers spend pulling their socks up yeah, yeah, exactly. and how much yeah. how much nose wiping goes on I mean there's a kind of very sort of base visceral physicality yeah. about that because Zidane is forever wiping the sweat yeah. blowing yeah. his nose and spitting and yeah. and you also I think it's interesting you know we're so conditioned visually to experience sport the way that mm. TV basically does it and you know that has its virtues and it's you know we like watching sport in that way but it actually is very restrictive and I think you know with football matches as you say you're always following the ball but when mm. you watch it live in a stadium mm. actually mm. what you're seeing is something much bigger and more interesting and a much more sort of complex arrangement yeah. of people yeah. in three-dimensional space of which the ball is just one part of it yeah. and, and that's where I guess the the different skills come into play for the viewer because me as a, as a, a non-football uh, person when I was at a football match um, and the goal happened, I immediately expected a replay. It was a really, <laughs> it was the weirdest sensation ever because I'd been so used to watching it on television. I yeah. literally didn't expect, because it all happened so fast. And I thought, oh, what happened there? And I, I just, right, where's the, oh, of course this is live, <laughs> you don't get the replay. And so that, that skill of watching yeah. and knowing what other, uh, which I guess is the job of the pundit on the television, is precisely to fill in that, um, yeah, that bit of skill, a, that bit of knowledge. I mean, there's a skill to watch, you know, you can watch a movie at a lot of levels, can't you? You can sure. just watch it in a kind of completely unreflective, check your brain at the box office yeah. mode, and that works sometimes for some movies, and then there are kind of higher and more mm, sophisticated mm. levels of watching a film, mm. where you're, you know, you're not merely watching what's on the screen, but you're referring it to all the other mm. films you've ever watched, and you're watching the kind of set direction in the back mm. as well, mm. and I think that goes for watching sport, actually, yeah. as well. And I think, and one of the nice things about the best of sporting movies is that it does bring, it's part of a learning process, it brings us new tools and techniques for watching mm. sport, both on the big screen but live. I mean, I take, you know, what I've learned about, you know, football from watching a movie like Zidane, and that's somewhere in the back of my head when I go and watch it live now. You know, I'm sort of also looking out now for people who are pulling their socks up or walking away from the action or, you know, I think it brings something new to it at its, mm. at its best. And, and what about the, uh, the Olympics and the way that they're covered by television? Because, of course, the Olympics have got a, a, a tradition of being recorded and being filmed. I mean, mm. there, is a, there is a history to that. Do you want to say a bit about that? There's different traditions going on. I mean, there's one tradition, um, there's the filmic tradition, which really begins um, with Olympia, with Riefenstahl's Olympia. I mean, we do have some footage of the 1924, the 1928 Olympics. So 36, Riefenstahl um, sets the tone, you know, in all sorts of ways for the coverage of sport for the next 30 or 40 years. And I think... This is Berlin. <coughs> this is Berlin. This is Berlin, 1936. And, you know, in many ways, rightly, the film has acquired a kind of, you know, negative aura um, as a piece of Nazi propaganda. Mm. And of course, there are many aspects in which that's completely true. And, you know, it's funded by, by the Nazi government. So, of course, that's true. But that to read it simply in that way, I think, is to miss a lot of stuff that's mm. in, that, in that film. And Riefenstahl, in her use of close-ups, 
in her uh, angles, mm. uh, in her framing, in the kind of focus that she brings to mm. covering sport revolutionises mm. the coverage of sport. And you know, everybody has basically been taking lessons, consciously or subconsciously, mm. from her ever fa since. Famous shots of of the the, the camera sort of tracking down. Um, you know, which technologically at that point were, were, were quite incredible. Absolutely. And then the story actually of the Olympics on film after that, it's like, what do you do after Riefenstahl? Mm. Everyone is slightly fighting shy. And so it's not until the Tokyo Olympics, 1964 and Tokyo Olympiad, which is everything that, you know, Riefenstahl was, it tries to be completely, completely different. It's in colour, it's not in black and white. It's incredibly humane rather than monumental mm. in its coverage. It's slightly kitchen places and it focuses, you know, on the quirky, the amusing, the unusual, the micro. 1972 Visions of Eight um, is perhaps the most interesting film since um, Olympia. And that's really because the Munich Olympic Organising Committee had the courage to say, go make the movie. Mm. Just you go make the movie. We're not going to tell you how to make it. And um, it was handed over to eight directors, each of whom got seven or eight minutes. And these were known film directors oh, yeah, in, very in, much. Their, in their craft of cinema. Oh yeah, yeah. Now, these were Frankenheimer uh, and um, Milos Forman. Uh, and Mia Zetterberg, um, the Swedish director. Since then, really, television has come to dominate. It's a pretty slick operation, but it is one very much framed by the demands of television, by the perceived demands by TV executives of what audiences want and the perceived needs of advertisers. Um, and we've ended up with super proficient, um, but slightly bland sometimes mm. coverage. And one, of course, framed by all the usual sort of inequalities and peculiar distortions of race and gender and able-bodiedness that, you know, mm. inevitably affect these things and the peculiar nationalism that every national broadcaster brings to their coverage. One of the projects that we've been doing um, as part of Relays at Watershed has been citizen journalism you've been uh, very much involved with. Can you just tell us um, what's involved in that and what the young people have been, have been working on? Around the Olympics and uh, at sporting events, the cameras are always trained very narrowly on a very narrow range of things, of course, the actual sporting event. But part of the experience, part of the pleasure, part of the interest of attending that kind of thing is all the stuff that's going on around it. Mm. So, a group of people with smartphones linked to a live blog, mm. it just seemed to me that's a great way of covering a sporting event, but in a slightly different way. Most teenagers and young folk mm. know how to use smartphones rather better than I. Yeah. You know, how to do, how, the, the skill becomes, how can you use these um, forms of social media and these forms of accessible technology, but marry them with more traditional journalistic techniques about, you know, asking the right questions, mm. being in the right place at the right time, framing an event, framing a picture, knowing how to write a headline. Because, you know, anyone can tweet, but, you know, mm. to write a tweet that people actually want to read and then pass on, that's, that's a real skill. Mm. So, you know, we've been working with um, young folks on the one hand, on the technical side, you know, how to take the photo and post it to your blog. But it's also about doing your research, thinking about who you're going to try and find, and having the front, you know, in those mm. situations to go up and say, you know, hi, hi, my name's David Goldblatt, I'm doing this project, 
could I talk to you for two mm. minutes? Yeah. Um, all of which are, you know, the kit bag, you know, the toolkit of, uh, of journalism, but can be applied yeah. to these new technologies. And we've taken them to football matches. We've been to big cycling events at Ashton Court. We've done work down in Weymouth, down on the beach, where much of the sailing will be happening in the Olympics. And also, I guess, that um, for them, they're part of this international, global Olympic event because they're well. They're it's a way of getting involved. You know, it's a really interesting way of being involved mm. with the Olympics. I mean, there's nothing wrong with sitting and watching it on telly. I intend to do mm. some of that myself. Mm. But it's really good to you know get out there and be engaged with that. And um, for listeners, for viewers, you you'll be able to see the results of this on watershed.co.uk forward slash relays. Actually, what are the dates that, that you're going down? Can you we are going to be uh, in Weymouth on the 27th, the 28th, and the 29th of July. Right. The 27th is the day of the opening ceremony. Right. It's the day the Olympics begin. The sailing mm. competitions actually begin on the 29th. Uh, and we'll be live blogging, I think, from mm. the 27th onwards mm. um, through those opening days of the competition in Weymouth. So what, what are some of the highlights coming up in July at Watershed for you? Senna. I mean, Senna is a simply extraordinary mm. movie and such a powerful and compelling narrative. And um, the point with Senna is that I took my son and my partner, Sarah, to see it. And they are not the kind of people mm. who go and see sports movies. Um, they leave the room when the football's on in our house. They were absolutely hooked. They could not take their mm. eyes off the screen. They thought it was one of the best movies they'd seen all year because you know, the humanity of the story, the way Ayrton Senna becomes such a powerful character mm. in Brazilian social life. Extraordinary, mm. absolutely extraordinary. So that's a highlight for me. Uh, anyone who hasn't seen um, When We Were Kings, the story of mm. the um, fight between Ali and Foreman mm. in 1974 in Zaire, mm. really just get down to the watershed because this is sports filmmaking at its best and a reminder of what an extraordinary character Muhammad Ali was. What an amazingly charismatic, beautiful, complex, crazy, amazing man he was, who we are profoundly lucky to have experienced and, and met through the world of boxing. And that film just captures so much of that. Um, I'm really looking forward to um, the movies that we've got coming out of Ethiopia about Ethiopian running, particularly the village in Ethiopia. It's so amazing that East Africa has created these generations of extraordinary distance runners. Um, and that's that I'm looking forward to learning a little bit more about how that's happened, what the kind of cultural roots of that are. Fire in Babylon, uh, the movie um, about the uh, West Indian cricket team of the 1970s and its relationship obviously with the migrant communities here in Britain and with politics back in, uh, back in the Caribbean, I think is, uh, is a must. Um, <clears throat> particularly, I mean, the West Indies are touring this year in Britain, so mm. it's a great opportunity to catch up on that mm. social history in an area of, of just fantastic cricket. Mm. And then The Cup, the, the story, the movie about the Buddhist monks, who, um, despite all the prohibitions against it, simply have to watch the World Cup yeah. and the lengths they will yeah. go to um, to do so. And there's something, I suppose, of the kind of East Asian Ealing um, comedy almost yeah. to it. And that's a very lovely combination. And it also really just does touch on, you know, the sort of 
the madness mm. that some people will go to mm. to be engaged with sports. So that's a really lovely movie and, and great to get along to. What, what's interesting about all of those is that if, as we started out saying what's the connections between sport and culture and all of those films absolutely perfectly illustrate the the wider connections between sport, culture, politics, race. One wonders, I mean, I often find this, you know, it's the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, and I just sort of think, why is sport separate from culture? Mm. I mean, if culture is about the realm of meaning, mm. it's about the production and interpretation of meaning, well, that's what's going on in mm. sport. I mean, yes, it's a contest and it's, it's a sort of physical thing, but it's about the production of meaning, of stories, mm. of character. That's what mm. holds us. Mm. You know, that's why we keep going back to it. In those documentaries, I mean, particularly, well, all of them, but Senna, you know, just because it was such a, again, um, opened up all those sets of relationships with the, the wider culture um, yeah. that, that Senna was significant in. Well, and it connects, you know, the individual biography with the wider social structure through the medium mm. of sport. I mean, God, mm. what more do you want? If you want to find out more about what's happening um, with the Relays programme at Watershed over July, then go to the website, watershed.co.uk. If uh, you want to find out um, more about the Olympics and how to watch them, then I do thoroughly recommend David Goldblatt's uh, book, How to Watch the Olympics. Um, and also just like to thank uh, David Goldblatt very much for being here today. Thanks. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you.